as you might have noticed in the bulletin, uh, this is meant to be the start of a really short Advent series. If you know what Advent is, Advent's the, the few weeks leading up to Christmas, the few weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this year for Christmas, uh, I wanted to preach on peace, the peace that Jesus brings us. And so now in the weeks of Advent, time to prepare for hearing about the peace we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, it makes sense to learn about the peace that we don't have without him, the peace we don't have right now. And so uh, this week, we'll be hearing about uh, the people's rebellion. And then next week, we'll hear about the people's oppression. And then finally, at Christmas, we'll hear about God's answer to our rebellion and oppression, the peace we have in Jesus Christ. Let's read together Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, have you ever heard of the Guinness Book of World Records? The Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, I've read it a number of times, or at least parts of it. And when I do, I can't help but thinking the whole time over and over again, why? So I looked it up uh, this week a little bit. One man, you might be interested to know, grew his fingernails on his left hand for 66 years. He couldn't use his hand anymore for anything. His fingernails were four feet long. Why? Someone else broke 46 toilet seats in a minute using only his head. No one else had ever done that before, apparently. Another man spent countless hours over 16 years typing out the numbers from one to a million on a typewriter. Went through seven typewriters. I also stumbled upon the longest distance dragged behind a horse while on fire. Over 1,500 feet. If you're anything like me, all you can do is let out an exasperated, why? What's the point? What are you hoping to accomplish? You can't think of a way, honestly, to spend 16 years of your life wearing out seven typewriters. Well, what if I told you uh, this afternoon that you and I are often doing something even more absurd, and we're prone to do it each and every day of our lives? Because likewise, like the Guinness Book of World Records in our text today, the psalmist starts with an exasperated, astounded, why? Why? He looks around and he sees people everywhere 
doing something absolutely absurd. And we'll see this isn't just a silly little attention grab. This is about war. And it's a matter of eternal life and death. And the psalmist does not understand why. Why do people spend their lives the way that they do? Not setting ridiculous world records. Why do people spend their lives rebelling against God? That's what we'll consider today. The people's rebellion. And we'll see this in four parts. First, we'll see the rage of the nations. Secondly, the reaction of the Lord. Thirdly, the reign of the anointed. And finally, the response of the wise. And don't worry, we'll move pretty quick through the four. First of all, the rage of the nations. If you look at the beginning of our psalm, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that David asks, Why? Why do the nations plural? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what David is describing here, like we already said earlier, starting in his day, or starting even before his day, and going on to the time of Jesus and the early church, and going on today, even to today, is an international conspiracy. Something that was going on in David's time, the early church, and still today, and will continue into the next generations, until Christ returns. What David is saying, you could look around back then, you could look around in Jesus' time, you could look around in the world today, and what you'll see is an international conspiracy. The nations, the peoples, the regular people all around the world, all the way up to the leaders, the kings and the rulers, all of them together are conspiring against the Lord. He says in verse 1, that they are setting themselves. Sorry, verse 2 rather. The kings of the earth set themselves. You need to realize that's military language. All of the nations together, they agree on one thing. What can every nation agree on? Well, they agree in this instance that they're going to war. Imagine every politician agreeing on one thing. What can they possibly agree on? Well, we see here, David tells us, war against the Lord and his anointed king. In the first place, David, but even more truly, more fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this united nations, these peoples, these kings and all rulers are are now united and together under a single mission statement. We can see that mission statement in verse 3. If you look at verse 3 with me. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's work together to throw off God's ropes and his chains. The law he's given us, the rules that God's using to tie us down and oppress us. And it's fascinating. Uh, Maybe you know Psalm 1. If Psalm 2 is not the most well-known psalm, maybe Psalm 1 is. Maybe you can remember the words of Psalm 2 verse 1, or if you have your Bible open, you can look there for a moment. There it's talking about the blessed man in Psalm 1. And it says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he meditates on it. He thinks it over carefully. He turns it over in his mind day and night. What we need to realize is the very same word is used here in Psalm 2. The rulers of the earth are taking counsel. That word is meditating. They're plotting. They're turning the law over. They're, They're muttering day and night constantly as they conspire together how to free themselves from what they see as God's ropes and cords. And what they think is that the way to happiness can only be found in freedom. If God tells them what to do and how they ought to live, 
then they need to declare war with him. They need to cast him off. They say, I want to be my own. I don't want to listen to anyone. I don't want to belong to anyone but myself. Brothers and sisters, we can see this so clearly, can't we? Isn't this so true? Not just in David's day, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day as well. We can see the nations and rulers of nations rebelling against God. What people say is that they're apathetic to God. They don't really care about him. But we can see in their actions, especially if we're familiar with God's law, it seems that that's not true, that David's right. They're not apathetic. They're antagonistic. They're actively trying to rid themselves from God's laws that they find oppressive. These these laws that we think are good, these laws that in Psalm 1, the blessed man is supposed to delight in. And so we can see back in David's day all the way up until now, the world and the devil directly opposing God's kingdom. And we can see it just in how there are, there are efforts to throw out any hints of anything that could be associated with Christianity, right? Uh, I, I read recently about people just trying to fight against the family unit and explain how it, it's oppressive. And that just, it hurts your heart, doesn't it? Families are beautiful things. Yes, there's been, there's been a lot of misuse. But families are so good, they're a gift from God right from the very beginning. But people want to fight about that against that and so many other things that they can just see as intertwined with God and his law. And what we see is people long to be free. They want to do whatever they want to do, uh, not only without hindrance, but, but with applause. They want everyone to celebrate together as they all work together to cast off their old Christian shackles. And the shocking thing, brothers and sisters, is that this law is not supposed to be seen this way at all. I think we can fall into the trap, even as believers, of seeing the law as something oppressive. But these bonds and cords aren't meant to be oppressive. They're actually gifts from God. In Hosea chapter 11, the Lord himself explains that these cords of his are cords of kindness. The ropes are bands of love, he calls them. How does that work? How are the law, how's the law cords of kindness? How are they bands of love? Well, they're meant to keep us close to God. They're meant to keep us close to the way he meant for us to live. They're supposed to teach us to live with him and for him as we were made to do. And that's why the blessed, the truly happy man, is the one who meditates on this law days and nights, tries to see what we see of God in them and how we can live by them more and more. But seeing these ropes, these cords of kindness, these bonds of love, the nation's rage, the rulers conspire. Let's cast off any hint of these ropes any way that we can. And what the psalmist says here is this is war, declaring war on the Lord and his anointed. But we need to be careful here because it is way too easy to just think about the news and to think about, oh yeah, other people, they really do seem to be rebelling against the Lord and against his law. They really do seem to be trying to free themselves from God's bonds and cords. But the question for us is, what about us? Are we doing essentially the same thing? Because God reveals in his word that oftentimes God's own people, I hope we consider ourselves God's people, God's own people often do this too. We heard from Hosea 11 about the cords of kindness and bands of love. Well, God's message in that chapter is right to his people Israel. It says there in that chapter that God called to them and called to them and called to the Israelites, come back to me, come back to my law. But but God says in Hosea 11 verse 2, The more they were called, the more they went away. My people are bent on turning away from me, says the Lord in Hosea 11. 
And we see it reads something even more shocking in Luke chapter 23. There we read about the nations raging and plotting against the Lord and Jesus Christ, his anointed one. And what we see, what we often think of there in Luke chapter 23, right at the end of Jesus' life, we think about two enemies from the nations against Jesus. Maybe you can think of them. Herod and Pilate. What we read in Luke 23 is that Herod and Pilate, at first, they were enemies. But shockingly, in Luke 23, suddenly they become friends. What could make these two enemies friends? How did that happen? What we see in Luke 23 is they bonded together over the trial of Jesus Christ. They both admitted that they found nothing wrong with Jesus at all. But nevertheless, together, they mocked him. They treated him with contempt. They beat him. And eventually, they sent him to death. And good for Pilate and Herod, they became friends. But we need to remember, it wasn't just the foreign nations there, was it? What other nation was there? What nation brought Jesus before Herod and Pontius Pilate? Who were the ones standing there calling out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? You read in Luke 23, the chief priests and the rulers and all the people, all of them were united together against the Lord and against his anointed. And just because we're in church, that doesn't mean we don't need to ask, are we rebelling against God? Even if we're not in outright rebellion, we still need to ask, are there ways that we're trying to cast off God's cords of love? Are there ways that we're trying to sidestep God's laws, find loopholes in it, failing to realize that God is good, that he is gracious, that his law truly is, as he calls it, cords of kindness and bonds of love. Because I bet if we're honest with ourselves, we can see in our lives laws that we know that we kind of choose to ignore or not look too closely at. Ones that we think or we feel like are kind of oppressive. And times it se- at those times, it seems like we don't trust God. We think we know better and we can just do what we want to do. We can reign in this instance. But this psalm is so important Because God has an extremely strong warning here for those in outright rebellion against him, but also for those who even, in certain ways, misview his law. And so first, the psalmist has us look around. He has us look at the raging and conspiring of the nations like we just did. But also look inside at uh, how we too can, can rebel against God. And when we do this, especially when we look at the world, we look at the nations, we look at oppression of the church, especially in openly hostile countries, We can get discouraged, can't we? Uh, And what should we do? I hope you remember. What should we do when we get discouraged? I learned about that a few weeks ago in Haggai. You don't look like you remember. That's a shame. What should we do when we look around, when we look within, and we get discouraged? We should stop looking around and look up, right? That's exactly what the psalmist does here. In our second point, we'll see that. The Lord's reaction We see the kings of the earth and the nations raging as a mob, planning, plotting the downfall of the king and his people. Until, and this sounds impressive and intimidating and discouraging, until we look up in verses 4, 5, and 6. And there we see the ruler, not of the earth, but the ruler of the heavens, 
far above all earthly powers. And what is that ruler doing? But well, we get a glimpse. I can tell you what he's not doing, first of all. That ruler in heaven, he's not pacing around. He, he's not looking for a bunker to hide out in because of the earthly kings and rulers plotting against him. He, he's not urgently on the phone trying to figure out a battle plan or, or figure out some help. Instead, in verse 4, we see this ruler is calmly sitting on his throne. And when, what's he doing on his throne? He said that in verse 4 as well. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the king's raging, the, the ruler's plotting, the people in uproar. Uh, have you ever seen uh, a little dog, maybe a chihuahua or something like that, try and pick a fight against a way bigger dog? It's kind of funny, isn't it? A chihuahua trying to pick a fight against a dog that it could never hope to win against. Uh, the dog that could use it as a chew toy, if it could even be bothered to. It's kind of funny. But also, it's kind of scary. Because you don't want the little dog to actually succeed. To start a fight to get itself hurt. But it's, it's kind of humorous, just because of the absurdity, the, the absurd pride and arrogance and audacity of this little dog to think he could start a fight with such a big dog and maybe win. And that's the picture that we get here with God laughing. Likewise, humans all together try to pick a fight they could never win. And God laughs, but not because it's funny. As H.B. Charles says on this text, it's not that God is laughing with us. He's laughing at us. H.B. Charles says, human rebellion is divine comedy. God laughs because it's ludicrous. If a little dog doesn't stand a chance against a slightly bigger dog, what chance do any humans, no matter how strong, stand against the Lord Almighty? Imagine for a second the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who we heard a few weeks ago from Pastor Ted, is still upholding all things. Apart from him, we cannot live or move or have our being. And people are trying to pick a fight with him. For those who rise up against the Lord, this laughing, this sitting of the king, this reaction of the king is very bad news, isn't it? In spite of their best efforts, all they can get out of God is a laugh. Yet, think for a second from the other side of the equation. Think about those who are with the Lord, who who call the Lord their father. This is the most comforting reaction we could ever see, isn't it? Those who are discouraged, they see the the world rising up. They see hostility towards the church. They see their own shortcomings and weakness. They see even powerful people opposing the church. It can be terrifying and discouraging. But what a comfort to look up for a second and see our Heavenly Father, not afraid. He's laughing. And if He's laughing, well then, I like our chances. So the Lord sits and the Lord laughs and then we see in verse 5 the Lord terrifies. And he terrifies not by standing up, not by taking physical action, but simply by talking. Simply by saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, you want to rise up, would you 
fancy to be your own king, your own queen? You want to rule yourselves? Well, too late, God says. I've already chosen my king, and we know that was King David in the Old Testament, but much more truly, much more fully. King Jesus, now, in the New Testament times. That's our third point, the reign of the anointed. What we see here is that God's anointed king, uh, his natural son in the case of Jesus Christ, adopted in the case of David, has been installed by God himself to rule forever. He's been adopted or set in place to rule for all times. And more than that, to his enemy's dismay, been set to rule over all nations. We read in verse 8, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And not just that, King Jesus will rule over all places, but he'll also rule over them with power. We read that in verse 9. Look at how powerful King Jesus truly is. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The great nations of the earth back then, Assyria or Egypt, in Jesus' time, Rome, in our day, the great nations of the world, Jesus is going to shatter them like a pot. This past week I went to someone's house and I accidentally knocked a little pot, fell on the ground, shattered into a million pieces. That's what King Jesus can do to the nations. What a powerful king he is. And so this is how uh, we see uh, the Lord responds. But we see he, he responds at least now, not by shattering the nations physically, but rather by ruling over them and shattering them verbally with the sword of his mouth. He responds with the gospel message. The gospel message of Jesus, a king who is so powerful he could shatter us physically and someday will remove all of his enemies, but who for now is just telling us about it. And this message should shock and warn those rising up against King Jesus, shouldn't it? It should get them to seriously reconsider and stop. But for some in the raging nations, what we see throughout God's word is this message only makes them angrier. It only makes them fight harder. We can see this so clearly in Acts chapter 7. Towards the end of Acts chapter 7. And as we heard together already today, uh, in the New Testament we get the story about how the nations are united to fight against Christ. We heard about Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the religious leaders. And it seems that they won. They put Jesus to death. But as we know, Jesus rose with this power, this power to shatter nations, to bring people in from every tongue and tribe and nation. And that is the good news that Stephen is preaching in Acts chapter 7. He went out and he preached this to the Jews. He preached this very message that they, the one, that they had rebelled just like people throughout the Old Testament had rebelled against God. They waited for this Messiah of Psalm 2 while he had come. And they had rebelled against him. They had risen up. They had put him to death. And then Stephen tells them they had betrayed and murdered this king, this almighty, this powerful king who can crush us. That was the message Stephen brought to the people. And what did the people do when they heard that message? Did they fall down on their knees and repent that they had offended such a king? Did they repent in dust and ashes that they had tried to kill their good king, the one who came to save them? But we see in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, 
they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Hearing about their rebellion, they only got angrier. And then Stephen, in this story, he has a vision and he preaches a final message to them. He preaches about how the king, how they they had put to death, was now ruling above them and he could see him on high. Verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then hearing this terrifying message that the one that they had rebelled against, the one they had falsely put to death, the one they called out crucify against, was standing over them, reigning above all. What did they do? Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Hearing about how they tried and they failed to overthrow this mighty king and how this king will win and he is ruling and he will crush his enemies, all these rebels can do is tremble, gnash their teeth and literally stop their ears. Then they rush after the messenger and kill him. What else can they do against this king? The truth is, sinful people by nature hate the thought of being ruled over. They hate the Lord and the king he has installed. That's what sin has done for us. They don't want to be ruled, they want to rule. But God has in this passage, in Psalm chapter 2 especially, a message for people like that. We'll see that in our final point. The response of the wise to this mighty King Jesus ruling on high. And what would you expect to be the end of this psalm? If you could think of a, yeah, what God might say to these rebellious people, these hard-hearted people, this rebellious nation. We might think that God's final word in this psalm uh, would be a word of condemnation. A word of judgment on the fools, little people who are declaring war on the God who made them and uphold him. The people who even killed his son, his raised and reigning king. You would expect maybe a message of imminent doom. But what does this psalm actually end off with? The psalm ends off off with a plea. The, The plea is, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Hostile rulers, rebelling kings, God's enemies, raging nations, plotting people, stop. Be warned. Be wise. Hear this message. You're rebelling. You're starting a war with God himself. How do you think that will go? Here, God, in his incredible mercy and grace, calls out to his enemies, these hostile people, people by nature like you and like me. And in his mercy and grace, he invites and calls them to reconsider. He calls his enemies actually not just to reconsider, consider, to reconsider and return. You see that at the end of our passage. Now therefore, O kings and rulers, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. <coughs> Excuse me. Here, God, in his incredible mercy, calls out to his enemies, people like you and me, and he invites them to come and kiss the sun. You can think of this as kissing a king's signet ring. 
And this call to kiss the sun is a call to humble ourselves, to lay down our arms, and a call to honor the king God has established, to submit to his rule. But more than that, not just to humble ourselves and to submit, but to embrace Jesus Christ as your king and as mine. And this isn't for submission, not yet. That will come. But for now, this is an open invitation, an open call on our lives. As the psalmist says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's a call to fear and to tremble of the greatness of who? King Jesus. But at the same time, a call to serve him as he served us and to rejoice in him. So the question of the psalmist here is why? Be wise, be warned, why? Why keep on casting off the chains? Why keep on rebelling? Why ultimately die? Why live in opposition to King Jesus when you're invited to come live with him? Why fight him when you can serve him? Why stand against him when you can simply bow before him? Why curse him when you can kiss him? Come and worship him and rejoice with him. What an offer this is. Brothers and sisters, it's not one that we deserve. This is a chance to repent and submit at the feet of Jesus Christ. More than that, it's a chance to find refuge. Verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his craft is quickly kindled. That means it can spur up in a moment and someday it will. But the final sentence of this psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what the psalm ends with. An invitation Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This awesome King Jesus who we heard about. The one who can shatter Assyria or Rome or USA or whatever like pottery. This king invites us to stop fighting against him. A fight we can never win. But instead take refuge. Take shelter. Take protection. Find hope and grace and love and everything we need with him. What could be better? I think it's helpful for a moment to think that there are two very different types of refuge, aren't they? Can you think of two very different types of refuge? You can find refuge in a place that's like a hiding place. You just hope nobody comes and finds you. Uh, You can hear about uh, philosophers or even reformers in the past. They had to find refuge somewhere, as in they had to go radio silent. They had to stop working. But then you hear of people who take a different kind of refuge. They take refuge with someone so powerful that they can go along life as normal and no one's going to mess with them. They can keep on working, they can keep on writing, they can keep on going out in public even though they have hostile enemies. That's because they have refuge. They have someone powerful who's got their back. That's what Jesus Christ offers us. We remain in the hostile world, but we're not hostile anymore. We don't have to hide, but we can go out in the open proclaiming that we have refuge in Jesus Christ and others can find refuge there as well. As enemies, as God's opponents, we're invited to lay down our arms to stop fighting him and instead to fight alongside of him or even better, to have this powerful God, this powerful king, this powerful ruler fight for us. That's what Jesus Christ does, isn't it? He invites us to come to him, lay down our arms, and he will fight for us. And if he is for us, who will be against us? 
Uh, this, uh, we have an incredible picture of this, of Jesus as our refuge towards the end of Jesus' life. Jesus uh, was on the road and he was coming to Jerusalem. You may know what happened to Jesus the last time he came to Jerusalem. He was coming to the home base of his enemies, the place where people were uh, gathered together, and his opponents were gathered together, and where they would seemingly defeat him once and for all. Jesus had just completed a long journey and he had told his disciples he knew he was walking towards certain humiliation and pain and suffering and death. That's what awaited him as soon as he got into Jerusalem. He was about to be given over to the hands of those who hated him and rejected him, who cast off his cords of love, refused to have him as their king. They wouldn't kiss his ring. And what did Jesus do as he looks over this vile city full of people who were literally about to put him to death in such a painful, humiliating way. What did Jesus do? Did he yell threats at them? Tell them they would regret this? Warn that he could crush them like cheap pottery? No. What did Jesus do looking over Jerusalem, those who were about to kill him? He wept. He wept. He wept over their unbelief. He wept they wouldn't come to him. In Matthew 23, we read, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stows those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is coming to those who are about to brutally have him murdered for no good reason. And what does he want to do? He wants to embrace them. He wants to cover them with his wings. He wants them to embrace him, their king. He wants them to take refuge with him, like chicks find refuge under their mother's outstretched wings. He doesn't want them to die. So much the opposite. Jesus wants to die for them, but they won't come to him for salvation. Maybe you've heard this before. When a mother hen senses danger and she gathers together her chicks uh, under her wings, and if danger is ever going to get to her young ones, well, then they're going to have to go through her first. The hen puts herself first in the fight. That's what Jesus is saying here as well. There are even tales of hens or chicks being found alive after fires, safe under their burned mothers. That's the picture Jesus gives us here. This great, almighty, powerful king sitting in heaven. He wants to be your refuge. He wants to cover you with his wings. He wants to die in your place. First, he invites us. He wants to fight for us. He wants to take your punishment and mine. He wants to die that you might live. And so he calls us to kiss the king, to kiss his ring. His ring on the hand that was nailed to a tree for your sins. Kiss the ring, he says. Stop rebelling. Go to Christ each day again. Admit by that by nature you do hate the king. But now by God's grace, you come to know this king Jesus, and he is good. He is good. And the more you come to know this king, the more you love this king. So ask him more and more to wrap you up with his cords of kindness embrace you with his bonds of love, teach you his law, because he doesn't give the law to oppress us. 
Why would he give the law to oppress us? He gives it to teach us, to nourish us, to lead us in a life with him. Don't run away from it. Don't try and cast it off. Ask that he might put it on. That he might teach us to delight in it, as the psalmist says that we ought to. Because the thing is, sinful people, they uh, want to find freedom on their own. But freedom's not to be found on our own. It's not to be found away from Jesus Christ. Again, I love how H.B. Charles says this. Is a tree truly free when it's ripped up by a windstorm and removed, freed from the soil? Is a fish truly free when it finally jumps out of the water onto land? Is a train really free when it pops off from its track and gets to go where it wants to go? Jesus is God's great king. And the good news is he's our great king as well. And he knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you better than you know yourself. He can teach us if only we'll submit. If only we will learn. The good news is there's a king and he's a powerful king. But he is a good, good king. And that's why the first word of this psalm is why. The psalmist was neither surprised nor worried nor scared by the rage and rebellion of the nations. All the psalmist was, was confused. First of all, he was astonished. Why would anyone even try to take counsel together against a God so powerful who can shatter the strongest nations? But secondly, more than that, far more than that, he was baffled. Why would you or I or anyone else rebel against a God like this? Why would we rebel against a king like Jesus Christ, a king who is so good? All the psalmist can ask is why. Why would you do this? Why would you choose to live your life in this way? His confusion is palpable. What a ludicrous thing to do. So brothers and sisters, don't try to find refuge away from King Jesus. You won't find it there. King Jesus freely invites you to come and find refuge under his wings. Amen. Let's sing in response. Uh, very similar words as we have